Well, what I want to do in this message is I want to pull the curtains back on the awesomeness of God and Jesus. I want to pull the curtains back on the awesomeness of God and Jesus. And I'm actually going to preach this week and next week. That'll be the first time in Signal where I preach two weeks in a row. We like to have a team of people. And, uh, and what I want to do is I want to preach Revelation chapter 4 this week, Revelation chapter 5 uh, next week. These chapters are otherworldly. And yet they're so relevant to the life that we now live in. Uh, And these two chapters give us a glimpse into into the place where God rules from, into heaven. And they teach us two of the most important things about heaven. They teach us firstly, chapter 4, that there is a throne in heaven. And then next week, chapter 5, that there is a lamb in heaven. A throne in heaven and a lamb in heaven. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus... You can be thinking, a throne? A lamb? What does that have to do with my life? Well, everything. I propose that this is some of the most important uh, realities that undergird the entire universe, the history of the world, and the true meaning of your life. And uh, over the years, I chat sometimes to my friends who are not Christians, and they I don't really get the idea of worshipping God. I remember somebody once saying to me, I don't believe in God. But if I were to die, and it turns out there is a God, I'll just have a little explanation. I'll say to him, hey, I did my best. I didn't know you were real. Just let me in. And, uh, and then, then the person says, but if this God then says to me, yeah, but you didn't worship me, he'll say, well, I'll tell that God, you're such a narcissist. Send me as far away from you as possible. So, I mean, you can get a little cheeky. Uh, but behind that is the idea that there might be a God who has inflated ideas about himself. I mean, that's what a narcissist is. What if God has very accurate self-understanding? And uh, I propose that that's the case. That when we listen to Revelation chapter 4, we just discover who God really is. Um, then maybe worship is an appropriate response to this being. And if you are a follower of Jesus, like most of you in this room, I pray that today in my message your hair will get blown back and that you'll have a passion to worship Him and to grow. And I also be reminded why we do spend when we get together, you know, the first part of our meeting together, worshiping God. And uh, at the end I'll explain that I, I see us being a worshiping community this year. So I'm going to go verse by verse to Revelation chapter 4. Here it goes. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. After this I looked. This is John, uh, one of the apostles. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. He's having this trance-like vision. And the voice I had first I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So John, by the way, is in prison. He is chained to the wall. His cell is small and he is and it's shut closed. And yet while he's in prison, God opens up a door. And not out of the prison, unfortunately, but into the heavenly realm. And this voice says, Come up here and uh, I want to show you something. I love that picture. You could be circumstantially in a very small, confined place. Perhaps financially, you've got yourself in a corner. Or emotionally, you are in a, just a negative space. You wonder how you could ever get out of it. Or there's some relational complexity, and you know how suffocating and painful that can be. And yet in the midst of all of it, in that tight spot, God is able to open up the heavens. And, and, and open up a door while you're circumstantially changed. Chained, he can he can cause your spirit to soar. And by the way, that's one of the things that God alone can do. 
Let's keep reading verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. In the Spirit. Yesterday I was on the boat, uh, on a boat out, uh, only first time I've experienced it out in front of Clifton Fort Beach. What an experience! You know, I, I spoke to someone on the beach and I said, you, you, you know, you, I suppose you wonder what it feels like to be on that boat. As cool as it looks. It's like, you're like, yeah. And, uh, but I remember talking to my kids uh, yesterday and saying, guys, so many people in Cape Town live as though the only things that are real are your body and the mountain and the cool thing you got planned. I said, we so desperately need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to realize there's so much more to reality. John is in the spirit. God opens up his eyes and what does he see? He sees a vision of a throne. A vision of a throne. In fact, 19 times the word throne is mentioned in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Now, remember the Bible was written to people 20 centuries ago. When they heard the word throne, some part of their mind lit up in a way that modern people's minds don't light up for the simple reason that uh, we don't live in a monarchy. <laughs> we look back on history. Remember, in a monarchy back in the day, uh, they didn't have democracy. They didn't even have a, a team of people leading them. There was one man, and sometimes a woman, who basically could decide whether you live or die. And nobody could counter this person. They literally owned everybody in their kingdom. So uh, the ancients, when they heard about a throne, their minds lit up. The problem we have today is we kind of think of a monarchy as something so utterly terrible because we live in an age of self-sovereignty. I mean, just let one government tell everybody, hey, everybody put masks on and look how we respond. It, we're just mortified that somebody could tell us what to do with our lives. I'm not making comments about masks, by the way, in this illustration. I'm just illustrating this response that we have. So what I want to do in this message is that when you, as a 21st century person, think of the throne of God that, that even Julie read about in his Isaac, such a prevalent picture in the scriptures, instead of having that yucky feeling that we have, you have a, a, you, you're enlightened about what the Bible writers mean by the throne. And in this message, I want to paint a picture of what we're meant to think about when we think about this throne. And I've got 10 brief descriptions for you uh, about the throne that I pick up as we go verse by verse. The first is this, God's throne speaks to us of God's control. God's throne speaks to us of God's control. When you see the throne, you're meant to think God is in control. See, John is seeing into the very throne room of heaven. God is king of the universe. He's king of the world. And the throne room is the control room. It's the control room. It's the place from which he created the universe. It's the place from which he sustains the world that he has made and governs the universe. And it's the place from which he will one day judge every person who has ever lived. So God is in control. When you think of the throne, you're meant to think of somebody who's in control. And although we could uh, read several books on the subject, this doesn't mean that everything that happens is something that pleases him. I mean, take me. Many, many times in my life, I've uh, you know, said, God, no thanks, I'm going to do it my way. I mean, this is the human experience. See, God being in control doesn't mean that we're puppets on a string. We have got free agency. We can rebel if we choose to. And hey, we can bring uh, confusion and disorder into our lives. And all of us probably in this room have done that at least sometime in our lives. And yet God he allows that because in the big picture, he will ultimately bring everybody in. 
But the first thing you mean to think about is that God is in control, the throne. Secondly, God's throne speaks to us not about God's control only, also about God's personality. It says something about his personality. John says, before me was a throne with a machine sitting on it. No, it doesn't say that. Before me was a throne where fiat power was sitting on it. No, it doesn't say that. He says, um, before me was a throne with someone sitting on it. Someone. What a relief. It's not blindly operating forces that control your destiny. And that's why we don't need to take our guidance from the stars. It means that we're not victims of mere chance or fate or luck. There is a person ruling the world. There's somebody with a heart, somebody who cares, and thankfully somebody who is emotionally invested in in the people that he's leading. And uh, one thing we've learned about human history is that when people are given power, very often they tend to be corrupted. In fact, I was in exclusive bookshops and one of the best-selling books is called Corruptibility. And the whole idea is what happens to a person when they're given power. And with rare exceptions, you're able to curb this influence in your life. But power has got a way of corrupting. The question is, is there somebody whose personality can cope with that much power? And I like to believe that it's the God of the Bible. And I want to persuade you, even as we read Revelation chapter 4, that there is somebody that the power doesn't corrupt. Thankfully, a person sits on the throne. Let's keep reading verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. Those are those beautiful, bright uh, gems. And a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. I mean, John is looking at something. It's the most beautiful sight that he has ever seen. The third thing we learn about God's throne is that God's throne speaks to us of God's majesty. God's majesty. I mean, this jasper, this ruby, this emerald. It's enough to know that the the colors of brilliance and beauty shine out the different aspects of God. And if the emerald stones are not enough, there's also this rainbow emanating from the throne, encircling the throne. And uh, this reminds us of Genesis chapter 9, where Noah and his friends are survivors. And they've just survived... And the world has been destroyed and they get to start again and out comes a rainbow and God makes a promise. Never will the world be destroyed again. And, uh, and it's a picture of hope. I, many times in my life in a bleak time, I'm seeking God and I look out the window and there's a rainbow. And I go, oh, I think that's God speaking to me. And I think it is a favorite way of God speaking to people through this rainbow of hope. But let's not forget that a rainbow is not just a picture of hope. It's such Beauty. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful things in all creation. And it's not just God's kingliness that's radiating out. It's his goodness, his majesty. I mean, the, the word majesty is usually described as somebody with royal power, but not just any royal power, royal power that, that stuns you with its magnificence. The word majesty is a picture word. It stuns you. 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power. Who am I competing with there? Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself above all else. 
Julie and I, many years ago, hiked in the Himalayas. And we had a, we had a Sherpa who ended up having a knee problem, so we ended up carrying his bag. True story. We carry, he, he limped behind us. We had to stop and wait for this guy. We, too pitiful, we felt too bad to send him away. Um, but, uh, but I remember we'd look up at this mountain, and I'd go, wow! And I'd often just praise God. God, you're amazing. You're so majestic. And then one dinner, he'd had a few drinks, and we're sitting down, and he said, who is God? We, we, you know, went, okay, this is a spiritual conversation moment. That was quite an aggressive tone. So I said, what, what do you mean? He says, money is God. Money, you Westerners, money is your God. So I said, no, 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 money's not my God. He says, and I see you looking up to the mountain. What do you see? So I see, I see the mountain, but it reminds me of someone greater than the mountain. And because he had grown up in Hinduism, Hinduism conflates the creator with creation, which means God can't be greater than the mountain. It's only if the creator is something other than creation. So I tried to explain this to him. And by the end of our trip, he did come to faith. But it wasn't God's greatness that stunned him. Ultimately, it was going to be a message of God's grace. But I never forgot that. That he couldn't comprehend how there's something greater than the mountain. There is a God who is majestic. Take the most beautiful things in all creation and multiply it exponentially to another level. And you're only beginning coming to the shore of God's majesty. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Fourthly, God's throne speaks to us of God's authority. God's throne speaks to us of God's authority. God's authority. So you have this vision. There's a throne and it's surrounded by other thrones. And if you don't know this, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, which means it's full of symbolism. And the question is, why 24 thrones? Why not 23 or 27? And a little bit of reflection, you realize that these 24 thrones re- represent the people of God. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, you've got Israel, which basically is 12 tribes. And the heads of these tribes are Jacob's 12 sons. In the New Testament, you've got the 12 apostles that spearhead the people of God. 12 plus 12 equals 24. So what John is seeing in this vision, the the coding in the vision, is that all of the people, the people before Jesus came, the people of God before Jesus came, the people of God after Jesus came, they are surrounding the throne. That's what these 24 thrones represent. And what's so beautiful, the people of God are not just on their knees before God who's on the throne, they're seated on thrones too. Here is a God who doesn't just receive our submission. Here's a God who shares his authority. He executes his will through his people. And when you get this, you get this revelation that you also see it on a throne and you've got a crown in your head. You realize why you can't have a passive posture to, to the Christian faith. If you were just on your knees and you spend your time worshiping, yielding, surrendering. But no, you get to exercise the authority of God. You're alive to do the will of God. You're alive to speak the word of God. Every day you can execute the the work of God in your generation. Let's keep going. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were burning. These are the seven spirits of God. Okay, lots of symbolism. What does it all mean? Well, let me just get to the point. God's throne speaks to us also 
of God's power. God's power. I hope you realize what I'm trying to do in this message, that for the rest of your life, whenever you read about the throne or hear about the throne or pray to God who is the king, your mind fills up with the imagery of Revelation chapter 4. So God's throne speaks to us of God's power. Firstly, there's the flashes of lightning. And this reminds us of Moses in 1300 BC climbing up Mount Sinai and there are flashes of lightning Hills of thunder and people at the bottom of the mountain are going, oh my gosh. And Moses is walking out right into the apex of, of this demonstration of God's power. God's power. And, and then there's the mention of seven lamps, which represents the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is ablaze with power. The Holy Spirit is ablaze with purity. The Holy Spirit is ablaze with passion. And He is ready to touch your life and my life with the power and the purity and the passion so that He sets your heart ablaze, sets my heart ablaze. And why is the the Spirit here described as the seven spirits? The seven spirits. Well, the word seven in biblical language speaks to completion, seven days in a week. But the seven spirits in, in ancient literature, ancient Jewish literature, also refers to Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, there's a prophecy of how one day the Messiah King, it's referring to Jesus, is going to come. And it tells us that the Spirit of God will rest on him and give him wisdom and give him understanding and give him counsel and give him might and allow him to fear the Lord and to have knowledge of the Lord. Seven descriptions. It's a reference to Isaiah 11. It speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And by the way, if you are in Christ, that's what it means to be a Christian, it means that the Spirit of God is ready to rest on you and give you wisdom and give you understanding and give you counsel and give you might and give you the knowledge of of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. This is all a reference to the power of God. So when you think about the throne, you think about God's power. The seven spirits of God. The sevenfold activity of God. The spirit is the one who powerfully executes the will of God in our lives, through our lives. I don't know about you, but I know from my uh, very few years of life, that every year, every year, I'm in desperate need of some wisdom. I'm in desperate need of some understanding. I need some counsel. I need some might, some power. My goodness, my knowledge of God is so slim. My fear of God fades. And I feel desperately alone. Oh, how wonderful it would be if the Spirit of God would rest on me. Well, guess what? He's ready to give it to us. We need to pray. We need to expect it. We need to trust Him for it. We need to reach out for more of the Spirit in our lives. We might need to ask our friends to pray for us. Come on, one of the perks of getting out of bed on a Sunday morning and coming here rather than going to Dalebrook Swimming Pool, as awesome as that is, is that you're far more likely to have the Spirit of God rest upon you here and give you wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, fear of God, knowledge of the Lord. I mean, that's one of the great perks of being the gathered people of God. Of course you can experience the Spirit of God in your own but let's be honest, there seems to be a lot more of Him going around when we're together. I really know what I'm talking about. I didn't miss church for 20 years. I, in fact, I go to church four times a Sunday and then we left Common Ground and we were going to try to find another church and lockdown came and for a whole year 
I only got to go to church a couple of times. And it was like a drought. Of course, there were moments of inspiration. But, you know, it was a trickle compared to the deluge of the spirit that I'd come familiar with when I gather with the people of God. I think it's a total tragedy when God's people forget what it even feels like to be in the presence of the spirit. It's like if you if you don't experience it for a long time, you get amnesia. And then you come together and you're like, whoa, this is what's been missing in my life. The presence of God. Let's keep going. Verse 6. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Clear as crystal. Number 6. God's throne speaks to us of God's peace. Speaks to us of God's peace. So there's this sea before the throne. And it's as smooth as crystal, which is very strange. Because in the Bible... In the Jewish nation, they were not a seafaring nation. The Phoenicians were seafaring. The Greeks and the Romans were seafaring, not the, not the Jews. In the Old Testament, whenever there's descriptions of the sea, it's described as restless, danger, sometimes used as an analogy of evil. The sea was not a cool place to be. It's like inland people seeing the sea. It's like, whoa, that looks dangerous. Well, the Jewish people felt like that about the sea. It was rough. And in heaven there's a sea, but it's totally under control. And of course, it reminds you of Jesus once being in a storm and speaking the words, Be still! And the winds listen to Him, and the waves listen to Him, and everything calms down. And isn't it wonderful in those times when your, your circumstances are whipped up into a frenzy, and worse than that, your mind and your heart are so distressed, and you're worried, and you're anxious, and you're fearful... And you're tired and, and it's hard. And you don't know what to do. And you're afflicted. And you just don't know where to turn to. And then you read a book on mindfulness. And it amounts to mind tricks. Trick your brain into just like not thinking about that stuff. Rather focus on the, your right elbow. Can you feel your right elbow? Your, your left bicep. Isn't it wonderful? I don't want to diss mindfulness. It's a great breakthrough in mind care. But what I'm saying, come on. How much better to have somebody Speaking the calming word over your life. Mindfulness is a state of mind that we can learn to produce. Learn it. It's a good skill. But the presence of God, that ability to subdue the panic, the fear, something altogether superior. You don't have to choose, by the way. I'm just trying to, I don't know what I was trying to do there. You figure it out. Let's keep going. Verse 6. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. 
They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Number seven, when we hear about God's throne, I think we're meant to think about the fact that God is creator. When we think about the throne, we meant to think about the fact that God is creator. He's the creator of everything. And because he's the creator of everything, he's also the king of everything. It's not too big of a jump that there's somebody who can speak the word. Mountain, come into being. Universe, come into being. Galaxy, come into being. And then, and then be in charge of what he created. To get from creator to king is not such a big jump. I suppose he could have been a creator who created it and then like walked away and he just watched it unwind and wondered what would happen to his creation. But no, the picture in the Bible is a God who creates creation and stays invested and involved in his creation. But notice the four living creatures. They're angelic beings who represent all of creation. So there's the lion who is the king of the wild animals. Ox is the famous is most famous among the domestic animals. Man represents humankind. And the eagle represents the world of birds, the creatures of the sky. Why only four categories of living creatures? Well, it's because in the Bible, four represents the earth. It speaks about, throughout the Bible, the four corners of the earth. So these four creatures, in a sense, represent all the living creatures of the earth. And then notice what this, these living creatures are doing. They've got wings, they've got eyes, they've got mouths. Well, these also represent the Creator's gifts to us. If we're creatures, these are the gifts God has given us. We have wings, well, not little ones, but think about our capacity for movement. Mind you, given enough time, we learned how to fly. How cool! <laughs> The, the, the mobility, the freedom, the movement. Let's not take that for granted. And then there's the eyes. This speaks of the God-given capacity for knowledge. We can know things. How awesome! I mean, my kids, once you discover, you discover like interesting YouTube videos that educate you. So we said, our kids, you can be on the screen as long as you learn something. Turns out there's so much interesting stuff to learn. And now, you know, they don't ask mom and dad. They just ask Siri and Google and they correct us because we got facts wrong. So I said, okay, okay, knowledge you can get in your own, but you've got to still come to mom and dad for wisdom. And then there's the mouths. This speaks of God, this God-given capacity for communication. Isn't it amazing? We can learn to talk to each other, to listen to each other. I mean, think how much happens in a preach. Right now, I'm, I'm preaching a message. These are just words. And yet they've got the power, if, if they're God's words, to change lives. But notice what these creatures are doing with their mouths. They are worshipping God. They say, you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. They are worshipping the fact that God is creator. He is the creator. And then let's keep going. Verse 8 says, day and night they never stop saying, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God's throne speaks to us also of God's purity. Speaks to us of God's purity. In the worship in heaven, one word it seems is used to describe 
God more than other words. It's the word holy. See, God's holiness is a reference to his perfection, to his one-of-a-kindness, to his purity. There is no darkness in him. All of his motives are pure. All of his deeds are holy. And then they keep going. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. And he lives forever and ever. See, God's throne also speaks to us. Number nine, we're right near the end of this message, by the way. God's throne speaks to us of God's eternality. Is that, I don't know if that's, is that a legitimate noun, Julie? Eternality. Okay, it is now. Okay. God's eternality. He is the same yesterday. He's the same today. He's the same forever. In a world and a culture where so much is changing so rapidly, it's awesome. It's awesome that there is a God who is not changing. Come on, isn't that one of the perks of living in Cape Town rather than Joburg? Joburg, everything's changing. In Cape Town, except with the mountain, it didn't change. I mean, that's why we so attached to this thing. Oh, stability. My grandparents saw you. My grandkids are going to still see you. God doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is a king whose kingdom lasts forever. You know, every generation lives in a time where there's some superpower that holds us in utter awe. I mean, if you track through the story of the Bible, which unfolds over many centuries, many millennia, you see the Assyrian kingdom, you know, reigning the day. And then that fades away. Oh, but look, now the Babylonians are the superpowers. Oh, no, no, now it's the Persians. Now it's the Greeks. Now it's the Romans. Each time you imagine, this is the forever kingdom. And history keeps on doing that. One kingdom rises, given enough time, it subsides, it implodes, it collapses, it falls. We, in history, are caught between two superpowers. The battle seems to be passed from one to the other. The American kingdom. I went to exclusive bookshops the other day, and I was looking at all these awesome books, and then it dawned on me that 99% of these books are written by Americans. I'm like, what am I doing in South Africa? And every book that is a bestseller, that exclusive, and this is one you've got to read, is written by one nation. What on earth? <laughs> this only happens because we're so in awe of one, you know, one kingdom. But every kingdom rises, and eventually every kingdom falls. Oh, but there's one kingdom! That only rises and never falls. And it's the kingdom of Jesus. And it's why God's kingdom is such good news. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yay. <laughs> and no one will ever take God's throne from him. For he is eternal and his kingdom is the eternal kingdom. And the number 10. When you think about God's throne, what are you meant to think about? Because us modern people, we don't know what to do with thrones and monarchies. That seems so old school. But then, then we read Revelation 4 and we're reminded, okay, what am I meant to think when I see the throne all over the Bible? Well, like, number 10, I meant to think of God's worship worthiness. God's worship worthiness. We see the four living creatures. They start the worship session. They're in the front. They're the band. And they're praising God in verse 9. Oh, but look, here comes, here comes more people. Now the 24 elders join in. So remember the four living creatures represent all of creation. And the 24 elders represent all of God's people. So notice what happens. 
first creation starts worshipping, and then the image-bearing creatures join in. I mean, isn't that what you see in Genesis chapter 1? God creates first the plant life, and the fish, and the animals, and then human beings. We join in last. Long before humans were worshipping God, the mountains and the stars have been worshipping God. And uh, it's a beautiful picture. And that's one of the reasons that when we're surrounded by creation, we're meant to get swept up into this worship of our Creator. We never made this world. Mountains, stars, goldfish, bats, subatomic particles, galaxies. God made it all. And we worship Him as our Creator. Okay, let me bring my message in. It's 2022. It's another year. Okay, it's another year. We're all going a little more gingerly than in years gone by. Remember reading on Facebook, somebody says, okay, guys, it's 2022. Nobody say, this is my year. Just walk in slowly. Don't touch anything. (laughs) That was my favorite meme. Don't touch anything. Just be nice. I think we all got that. But as a community, I think that we get our marching orders from Revelation chapter 24. So three things that I see signal being this year in 2022. Let's be a worshipping community. Let's be a worshipping community. Mission exists where worship doesn't. So many people in Cape Town City, all they see is creations. They don't know there's a creator. They're like Syria. My Sherpa. What do you see? What are you guys on about? Let's be a worshipping community. Let's see the one who is greater than creation. Greater than culture. The one who can satisfy our heart in a, in a way that, that even a uh, you know, sunset picnic on Fourth Beach can't. Let's worship together. Let's be a worshipping community. And the word worship, worship comes from the English word worship to ascribe worth. I mean, what is worth more than God? What is, there is no greater worth than Him. We worship what we ascribe most worth to. So when we think that a loved one is the most worthy thing, we're going to worship that person. And we're going to damage that person and we're going to damage ourselves. Or maybe it's a hobby or maybe it's money or it's a dream. I don't know what it is that you ascribe worth to. But we need to be very careful that we ascribe ultimate worth to God and to the Creator, not to creation. I mean, this is the story of everyone's life. Getting wrapped up in some creature or creation that for us is the most important thing and then being utterly devastated and disappointed by it. And actually, it's important that we are because we've got to realize it's not God. It can't do for us or that person can't do for us what only God can do. Let's be a worshipping community that ascribes worth to the one who is truly worthy of worship. He is not a narcissist. He has got a very accurate self-understanding. And we don't worship him because he needs to be worshipped as though there's a hole in his heart. No, we worship him because we need to worship him. Because that's reality. Because worshipping him is like being a flower receiving the sun's rays. And then in 2022, let's not just be a worshipping community. Let's be a submitted community. Remember, we live in the age of self-sovereignty. All day, we watch videos and we have conversations and we read articles that remind us 
that we are the unrivaled master of our own lives and nobody dare tell us what to do with our lives. Let's be honest. Without realizing it, it affects our understanding of the Christian life. So that we begin to see the Christian life as God being somebody who merely enhances my life. Think about the moon. The moon enhances the earth. It comes around the earth. You know, the earth doesn't really need the moon. The moon needs the earth. And the moon, you know, enhances things. But now think about the sun. Oh my goodness. The earth needs the sun. In fact, the earth revolves around the sun. And when we think about God, he is not a moon god who merely supplements our lives. Oh, it's so nice to have a spiritual component in my life. I needed something more in my life, you know, just to round it off. No, God is God. He's the king. He's in charge. What he says goes. He tells us what to do with our bodies. He tells us who we can have sex with. He, and who we can't have sex with. He tells us what to do with our money. He tells us what to do with our minds. He tells us what to believe. He tells us what how to think. And, uh, and here's the thing. It's perfect freedom that he gives us. Our culture thinks, oh no, that a complete tyranny. No, no, try it out. Try think the things God wants you to think. You will find freedom. Do the things God wants you to do. You will find freedom. So Signal Church, let's be a submitted community. Let's not be naive. All of us, we're getting seduced by our culture every week. Every week we come back together and you look around and go, who of us got taken in this week by our culture's lie that we are our own king and master? And we come back together and we recalibrate. We realize God doesn't revolve around us like the moon. We revolve around him. He's in charge. He's the king. And then lastly, let's be a ministering community. Signal Church in 2022. A worshipping community, a submitted community, and lastly, a ministering community. Remember what I said about the 24 thrones? God doesn't just have us on our knees. We're not just passive saying, God, you're in charge. You're in charge. You're the best. No, God shares his power with his people, which is what he does in Genesis chapter 1. God puts Adam and Eve in. He says, your job is to rule the world on behalf of me, to care for it, not to dominate it, not to ecologically destroy it like we have, to serve it to its full potential. And God's plan has always been to take your life and to make you a royal son and daughter of a king, to be a prince or a princess with executive powers. You're not just on show. You're not just meant to be surrounded by paparazzi because of your royal privileges. You have got royal responsibilities. You're meant to use this authority. Use this power. And I love those, those four uh, creatures. There's the ox. There's the man. There's the eagle. And there's the lion. And in fact, Jesus, the four Gospels... I don't have time to get into this now, but Matthew is Jesus' king, the lion. Mark is Jesus' ox. Luke is Jesus' man. And John is Jesus' eagle. These are the different aspects of God. These are the different aspects of Jesus' ministry. And if you're in Christ, they're the different aspects of your ministry this year. So I wonder in what ways you can execute the will of God and minister to others as a lion. In other words, exercising authority, roaring a little bit, having a little bit more God-given confidence. 
And I wonder how you can minister to others, not just as a, as a, with, as in a kingly way, but in a serving way. Because you're an ox. Jesus says the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This speaks about your practical ministry. There are things that you can do where words are not enough. Do something. How can you serve your neighbor? How can you serve people in need? How can you uh, see your career as an opportunity of service? And then I wonder this year how you can minister not just in kingly ways and in practical ways, but in prophetic ways as an eagle. Hearing the voice of God, speaking the word of God to people's lives, God giving you a message for others. Uh, some good news from the 4th to the 6th of September. We'll tell you more about this next week. We've got a weekend conference. I'm not sure exactly what day it's going to be. I think it's Friday night, Saturday, where, um, and it's called Prophesy. Dave, Dave has organized it, and, uh, and he's got some people coming from Durban as well as from Europe. To, uh, to run this conference. We'll tell you more about it next week because we want to grow in our prophetic ministry. And lastly, I wonder what ways you can minister to people this year in compassionate ways, like the human being, humanity of God. I wonder, I wonder where you can show people that God cares. Show people that God cares. Uh, it's going to be an exciting year, Single Church. Let's pray. Julie can I ask you to pray and to close the meeting. Just hoping, um, expounding on Revelations 4, my eye drifted to the last verse of Revelations 3. We've been talking about this throne and what it represents. And the end of Revelation 3 ends with this. It's, it's the son speaking and he says, to, to anyone who overcomes, I give them the right to sit with me on my throne, the throne that my father has given me. And so if everything, whatever stuck out to you, for me, it was um, the throne's hope, represents God's holiness, his total control, and his total peace. And I have access to sit with God on his lap, on that same throne. Thank you, God. God, uh, I'm just turning that into a prayer. <laughs> Lord, I pray that the that the points that most resonate with each one of us here today, um, that they would settle deep into our heart and that we would, above all the other things we're planning on doing this year, we would see us uh, sitting with you on your throne as one of our highest and most holiest of priorities for 2022. In Jesus' name, amen.